Sometimes it's a lovely bake, but sometimes it's a bit dreadful. Welcome to the Gingham Altar. I'm Mac. And I'm Megan. Every week we tackle another episode of everyone's favorite baking competition, the Great British Bake Off. And after we've set our piece, we try to put our bakes where our mouths are and replicate some of the recipes from the day's episode. This week we are exploring Season 5, Episode 3, It's the Dreaded Bread Week. <gasps> Not dreaded for me. You know, I had a lot of fun with Bread Week. Go figure. People on the show are really scared of it, and I understand why. Because it anything, it has a critter in it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, a critter. I was, I was like, what are you talking about? A critter? <laughs> yeast. Like yeast a is a little critter. Yeah, it's alive. <laughs> it's this little living thing that can wreak havoc with your well-laid plans. And the yeast wasn't my issue. Was it an issue for you? No, the yeast went along perfectly. But before we jump into Bread Week, uh, I do want to share a little bit of listener feedback. I mean, it's not like it's super fancy. It's just my mom. Uh, no, I love your mom. <laughs> Thanks, Dot. I know so, whatever you're about to say is just precious. It's not precious. It's actually a complaint. Oh, it's not about me, is it? No, it's right. it's about me, I guess, because I'm the one who writes the show notes. So when we talk about the the episodes that we're doing, we go by where it is in the in the actual run of the show, uh, how it airs in Britain. So it's season five. Episode three this week. It's oh, I know what's coming. She went to go find the episode on Netflix to watch it so that she could understand what was going on in the episode. And she watched a full episode and a half of a different season before she realized <laughs> she was in the wrong place. It was like, what the fuck is going on? Who are these people? Where is Louise? Where is Richard? Right. <laughs> She's like, who, who is Mary? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Like, she had really gone quite far. That's and awesome. And so I, you, you know, like you do with your mother, I was like, well, why didn't you text me when you were confused <laughs> instead of trying at it for what has sounded like multiple hours at this point? Whoa. Oh. Because she watched a couple of episodes. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, it's not like she, it's not like that's any great uh, punishment or anything. It's it's no. a pretty fantastic experience, no matter how confused you are. But yeah, that is amazing. We, I, I think we mentioned it in the first episode, but if you're just joining us whenever, uh, I have now edited the show notes so that it lists both the season that we're doing, but also the collection number it has on Netflix. So... It is Season 5, Episode 3, Collection 1, Episode 3, for those of you who are watching along in the U.S. Also, I don't know if you've gotten the memo, but they're going to have a great American baking show. Hmm. I mm -hmm. don't think that Americans are going to be good at this style of show. The competition that doesn't get too, like, cutting or deep or things like that, I don't know that that's something that we, as a culture, especially in our TV do you feel like we're not polite enough we're definitely not polite enough like it's a very pausable show oh absolutely like and i don't see that as a negative obviously otherwise we wouldn't be doing a podcast about it but like it's more like a podcast in a way because it's chatting and experiencing but i mean you can stop and go get stuff done at any time and then come back to it well i think that it points out that baking is not a high pressure endeavor or it shouldn't be yeah, I mean, sometimes you and I might get stressed out because we've put a time limit on ourselves or you're trying to fit it into a time period that like it really like you really shouldn't have done something this ambitious with so little time to plan for it. But by and large, the act of baking, there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of sitting around. You can do stuff in the middle. It really works itself into domestic life. And so it doesn't lend itself to dramatic music and and insane montages and whatnot like they really have to splice that stuff together to make it work so you ready to enter the tent i am ready i am so ready for bread week i actually make a loaf of bread every week so this one is pretty exciting to me but this took more i guess skill or research than i'm really used to because i usually just do a loaf of sandwich bread for ryan's lunch i wish i were that industrious uh, i have a couple of standby bread recipes that I used to make fairly often, but it's one of those things that we don't eat a ton of bread. Mm, you probably shouldn't. We shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, because what I made this week was delicious. Yeah. And then I put it into my fitness app and I was like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> fitness, you know, it's all about balance, isn't it? Isn't it? I aspire to be more French, just eat tiny, tiny portions of things I love. 
first challenge, they had to do rye rolls. I don't remember how long they had for that challenge. Do you remember? Was it four hours? No, it was like, I think it was three. So three hours to do rye rolls. Have you ever baked with rye? I have not baked with rye. I haven't done a lot of the extra flowers that are out there in the world. Uh, I've actually been reading a little bit in Mark Bittman's How to Bake Everything. And so there's like a big, there's a great explainer in there about all the different kinds of flowers. So the thing about rye is that it has a lot less gluten so you have to work it a bit more to build that up, but that it does give you a, a darker bake and a, and a rich texture, if I'm not mistaken. Interesting. And I had to look up, because pumpernickel is mentioned later in the episode, because Richard refers to something he's making as an American pumpernickel. And Paul schools him and says the only pumpernickel is German. And yeah, I looked it up. get over yourself, Paul. I know, but I looked it up, and according to dictionary.com, that is absolutely true, because the definition of pumpernickel is a dense, dark German bread made from coarsely ground whole grain rye. It is German by its very nature, but Paul is still annoying. And... They were using molasses to darken the already darker rye flour because, or the rye breads because, in our minds, rye is supposed to be attractively dark. It's supposed to be a contrast to wheat breads, correct? Right, and certainly not the, the white uh, that we're going to see later on with things like baguettes, baguettes and ciabatta. One thing that I thought was interesting is that because the rye bread has less gluten, the idea is that the bread has to be worked more to develop structure. And a couple of the contestants did not get that structure. So they ended up with sort of squat or flattened buns. I think Chetna had like a flatter roll. There's a danger apparently with rye to glazing, any kind of glazing. Yeah. Because the outside, the crust of your bread can get dark faster than the inside can reach a done temperature. And I thought that that was actually a problem with the bakers kind of across the week was everybody didn't let their bread cook long enough. That they were getting afraid that the it was getting a little crusty on the outside. Mm -hmm. And so they were bringing it out. And so even our Luis, who ended up being our star baker this week, his showstopper was underdone. I think that that's something that Martha, who uh, had the egg wash and the... the Weird judge look of the week from Paul. Yes. Um, hey, Oops. Right. It was like, he was clearly telling you, hey, don't do that. But, yeah. you know, and, and she found out and, and got a little better about it. But you've got to work it and then you need to stick it in a proving drawer. And this may just be because I've been apartment living my entire adult life since I started baking, but I don't really understand what a proving drawer is. I I know what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to provide a consistent temperature with very little air circulation and that temperature is not supposed to be very high. It's supposed to be like 75, 80 degrees and so it's a it gives a faster rise, kind of like if you stuck your bread outside to rise in summer. Not here because summer's like 95 degrees here. I know what it is. I have never actually seen one. A proving drawer, that is. Yeah. It's like, stick your bread in a in a dark, warm place. And it's like, well, I mean, I can give it a shot, but I've only got cabinets, basically. Yeah, and we keep it 69 in our house during oh the day. Oh, my gosh. Oh. <laughs> You're so cold all the time. You keep it 69 during the day? Yeah, it's like 67 at night, but that's because of Helen. We keep it a little bit warmer. We used to drop it to 65 at night. Oh my gosh. It is a major compromise in my marriage that we sleep at 68 degrees. I I gave up so much for that. For Dale to for Dale to get that. I I prefer my house to be about 75, 77 degrees. Oh my god, that's Mac. That's like a hamster cage. Like, that's, no, no, that's steamy. I get, you know, I'm Dale. I'm well, Dale in I'm, this situation. I'm steamy. <laughs> it's you. You're the one generating all that heat, babe. So my father-in-law and his wife live in upstate New York near Syracuse, which has record snowfall on a regular basis. And they sleep with their window open at night in winter. No. Yeah. No. Polar bears. Both of them. That's we're all polar bears. There are times that we talk about moving out of the South, and mm -hmm. that is one of the things where uh, I remember I was going to a a library conference a few years ago in Chicago in the winter, and somebody on the listserv was like, "Hey, everybody, don't forget to bring your waterproof shoes." And I had no idea what they were talking about. I didn't. I was like, "Well, I don't know if I own any waterproof shoes, and I don't know how I would assess that fact." Oh, and so I just brought bad. my shoes. 
And those oh, of you no. who have ever been in the snow before uh, know yeah. that snow melts and gets very wet and will, you know, soak you to the bone. And there was a blizzard while I was there. Oh, no. Oh, no. So it was, you know, you, you live and you learn. Uh, <laughs> you didn't lose a toe? No, no, no. All 10 still there. So I have a, a couple of questions for you uh, based on some things that happened in this signature challenge. Okay, go for it. So first off, I think it was Kate dropped a roll out of the oven on the floor and then put it back on her tray. Which I've seen in other episodes and it's like, <gasps> and in this episode it was just like, meh, that happened, whatever. I think it's because it was dry. But the question I was going to ask is, are you the sort of person who... Just in your family, and maybe not like with outsiders, if it's a dry food and it falls on the floor, will you eat it? Me? Absolutely. Ryan? No, I would never feed him something that had fallen on the floor. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> See, I'm the same as you. I was like, so long as it's not like I can brush it off and it's okay. Or I don't know. This is a lie that I tell myself in my head. If it's going in the oven or goiling it, going into like a, a pot of something, I was like, the heat's going to kill it. Whatever yeah. got on there, it's going to be fine. Oh, yeah, definitely. Have I eaten an M&M out of a sofa? Yeah. As long as it's my sofa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying you're going around our friend's house and be like, is that a chocolate chip? <laughs> Yeah, like I wouldn't do that, but nothing is too terribly safe for me. I I will eat most things off the floor. And then there was a couple of lines that I really liked out of this section of the episode. Quotes out of context. I liked Richard saying, I ain't going to find it out. <laughs> I was like, apparently there's a, a South in Britain somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and he definitely has a little bit of that working class accent thing going on, which I kind of appreciate. Yes. And then uh, Mel says that Kate at one point, and I one day I hope someone describes me this way, oh. that she has the face of a wood nymph and the body of Ryan Gosling. You know, I wrote down that exact same quote. She also says at some point, it's like something out of a John Carpenter film in reference <laughs> to their dough. And oh, yeah. And that is bubblicious, girl. Which reminded me of Destiny's Child's I was like, yeah, that body's so bootylicious. Yeah, there we go. Yep. Quotes out of context. We did have an overlapping one. But yeah, I think she, she tends to whip out some of the best one-liners. I wonder if she saves them up or if it just comes out of, like, bubbles out of her. <laughs> I have a couple of other out-of-quote contexts. Um, I quite enjoyed that. And that is very exotic pesto. <laughs> so cute he's the cutest man <laughs> and you know i think that i kind of admire that he sticks to his guns and his idea of what kind of a baker he is so there are two ways to look at it either norman we're talking about norman by the way either he is setting these boundaries for himself where he thinks well i'm unfussy i'm not going to do fussy things that's not who i am and is actually limiting himself to things that are simple and basic, or he really does just have a good handle on what he likes, how he likes to bake, and it's very traditional. And I can kind of get behind having that sort of identity and knowing what you're good at and what you like to do and not wanting to make some half-assed attempt at doing something that seems fancy. Well, there's a, there's a power in the basics in that almost everything is built out of them. And so if you can master those, if you ever decided to move on, you can. But I think that so many people, when they start trying to bake, and I know that I was certainly guilty of this, they see something that's out there that they want to recreate or a recipe comes across and they attempt it without necessarily having Background. the skills behind it to be able to back it up. I think that that's one of the big things that you can see out of like uh, like BuzzFeed's Tasty Vertical. Ugh. It has a lot of things on there that I don't know are necessarily the best ways to go about cooking. Yeah. I've certainly cooked things off of there and some of them have, have been... Some of them have been pretty good. I mean, we made some buffalo chicken pot stickers that were pretty good. But it's a different way of going about it where there there is something fulfilling. You know, if a recipe's been around for 100 years, there's probably a reason why. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're talking about British baking, which has a hundreds of year long documented history. And like historical baking is its own separate hobby that I find really interesting. So I kind of get thinking, well, I want to make a farthing biscuit because people used to sell them for a farthing and this is how they were made. And farthings aren't a thing anymore, but this biscuit is because I made it. And 
don't know. I think that's fun. Yeah, and I don't know that we've had any this season, but the the show will sometimes go into the history of, of different things that they're making or go on a field trip to somebody who's a specialist in a certain thing that they're trying to recreate. I really enjoy that. Were there any particular standouts among the signatures that you enjoyed? I'm so predictable because I love Luis always and forever. Kate and Diane, actually. I don't talk about Diane a whole lot, but she also and Luis had really interesting shaping. Kate did like a knot, but with two different colors of breads, and I tend to like that color variation. Diane did those flower pot rolls that... I thought looked great. Paul did that thing where he looked it over and said, oh, well, if you tear all this off, it looks so much better. And I thought, well, it looked good to me before. But it also had a lot of cheese in it, which I'm always a fan of. And Luis did this really interesting crescent that somehow rolled the darker dough around a lighter dough and then had splits along the side that exposed like the tube of lighter dough in the center. And it was so beautiful and I actually have done some Googling trying to figure out how he did that shaping because I'd love to recreate it. And I think that that's something that comes up with bread is that the the shaping of bread, you have a lot more flexibility in shaping it because it's sturdy. And it's meant to be touched and worked where pastry is not. Right. And so it's not, you can do a lot better than a round or a square or, you know, whatever tin shape you've got. And I think that that's something that I don't know that I've ever seen great instructions for how to get those things done. If there were a cookbook or an instructional series about that, I would certainly be interested. Well, I found a really good resource that I'll tell you about later when we talk about what we chose to make this week. So I do have one suggestion if you want to try a different shape that ended up being surprisingly simple once you follow the step-by-step process. Cool. The only um, signature bake that I would add onto that list is I know that Nancy's didn't come out tasting or they they were underproved or underdone a little bit but i thought the idea of a pear cider and walnut roll sounded mm. delicious that does sound pretty fantastic i forget was it the liquid from the pear that was her problem it was a little bit of that she just didn't leave it in the oven long enough is what he said yep okay and and that was kind of a, a general comment around the board you know all of these could have stood five eight ten more minutes and louise actually got a handshake mm. and again it was not the handshake it was just a handshake which i think is nice he did refer to it in a cutaway like as a handshake so it was starting to be kind of known for a thing but it's still not not emphasized i don't mind the handshake at all when it's a genuine gesture of congratulation and appreciation right when it's performative of you know your your stamp of approval eh, yeah less into that yeah, like it's just an extra gold star that you can get at random that only Paul can give. And right. I'm not about you getting to give out extra gold stars that your partner doesn't. But anywho. Oh, one thing I wrote down. I make bread fairly frequently, and I usually do it with Cook's Illustrated recipes. Mm-hmm. I have a book called Bread Illustrated that I would recommend to anyone. And I also occasionally use their Baking Illustrated book. I love it because they do... They have a test kitchen and they do lots and lots of iterations of the same recipe with tiny tweaks so that they can tell you not only what is the ideal way to bake something or to cook something, but they tell you why. And they have a scientific reason behind the inclusion of each ingredient and they explain it to you. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. Then we move on to the technical challenge, Mm -hmm. which was four perfectly even ciabatta. Which is a tall order you realize how difficult the challenge is when you see their blobby, liquidy dough pour out and think, oh my, somehow they're going to have to make four identical ciabatta out of that goop. I was a little confused because the ciabatta that you can buy at Publix, or which is my first exposure to it because I'm not very cultured in some ways. Oh, stop. It's it's not in that baguette shape. It's more like a, like a country loaf. It's a big circle. Mm-hmm. And so when they were making it, I was like, Oh, that's not what I would have thought based on my personal experience. So it's realizing that what you've been calling ciabatta probably wasn't ciabatta. Yeah, or that you can shape it however you want. Like the the air pockets, the simple ingredients, all of that was still in it. They, I think the public shapes it that way so you can use it as sandwich bread. Right. Mary Berry listed the things that they were looking for in the ciabatta as a strong crust, 
a good dome, and an airy structure. So you're looking for, it's a chewier bread. Yes. It's the sort of thing I imagine being served with olive oil and a good vinegar. So this is the recipe that I decided to take on this week. And I used a Paul Hollywood recipe, but it apparently wasn't this one because my recipe actually had a little bit of oil in it. Oh. So this was an even simpler version of this recipe. I think that there may have been three ingredients. I think it was just flour, yeast, and salt. Simple, I think, can kind of leave a lot of room for error, which, I mean, I'm I'm interested to hear how that went. So a lot of people ended up with flatbreads. You've got to stretch it. And... But he did give them the biggest tip that they needed the whole time, which was to be patient and to use mm-hmm. every minute of, of that time that he gave them because, you know, it bakes up pretty fast. And so the big thing is to just to sit around and wait on it. It's so hard. Kate ended up winning the technical and with Luis in second and Jordan came last. Yeah, Jordan didn't do so great this week. Bless his heart. No. And is there anything you else you wanted to say about the technical before we move on? I'm going to go into it more when I get to my recreation of it. Uh, I thought that this is just one of those periods on the show where you can kind of see that it's kind of boring when you don't when you're not able to intersperse other things with your cooking. Right. Right, when you're just sitting there. Yeah, cuz they had two and a half hours and at least an hour and a half of that would have been proving. Yes. And they all talk about sitting there and twiddling their thumbs and being like, I want to do something. Right. But if you're ready to talk about this showstopper, I'll go ahead and say Jordan's looked so gross. Here's the thing I'll say about Jordan's showstopper. Him talking about it, Mm. I like all of those flavors. Mm. I love bread. I love raspberries. I love cream cheese. I would love all of those things to come together. It kind of looked like like it was like an anthropomorphized dough character had been stabbed. Mm, yeah. It reminded me of, have you ever seen like a cheap grocery store cake that has those glazed strawberries on top? Yes. Yeah. Do, are you saying it that way because you've eaten them and you like them? Oh my gosh. Mac, <laughs> so gross. I, so gross. See, and that, I, I can appreciate that like home bake is better and that professional bake is better. But oh. like, oh, I mean, I'm not going to turn down grocery store cake. That looks like a diabetic coma to me. That is just like, oh man, I just can't. Yeah, I looked at his and it was just like pink goo. Pink goo everywhere. And we'll back up a little bit and say that this pink goo monstrosity that Mac would have been okay with and I would not was the bread showstopper, which was some sort of a filled loaf. And they had four hours to do it. And they say right at the outset that the toughest part of any filled loaf is moisture because if you use a fruit, like Jordan used strawberries, or a veg that releases moisture, it's going to make steam as it bakes and it's going to create a large air hole or it's going to soak the bread underneath it. So by doing something that was that moisture heavy with the cream cheese, with the strawberry, with the, did he have something else in it? Raspberry. Raspberry. And he also used a very buttery dough. So that has a lot of fat and liquid as well. Jordan just made a fruit puddle, bless his heart. And the other requirement was that it should be a centerpiece. So it should be decorated in such a way that it could serve as the centerpiece of a table. Yes. And so that's kind of an extra added layer where some people who had varying layers of successful bakes like Norman or Nancy kind of really fell down on the job. Other less successful people. So we, we can talk about the less successful first. Kate was an example of a bread that made me say, wow, when I saw what it looked like. And then they cut it open and she had rolled it so tightly that it wasn't able to bake and rise in the center. So it it looked fantastic when she served it, but then cut it open and it was raw. And that was a sad moment because you could tell by her face that she had no idea when she put it in front of the judges that that was going to be a problem. I think she thought she had a hole in one. Yeah, well, and especially because Mary starts out by complimenting it. Mm-hmm. Because now, I will say... I was a little grossed out by hers because she put a mountain of coriander in there. Coriander. And I think maybe it, maybe British people don't do this, but it, we call it cilantro. Right. Like coriander is what we call the seed. Um, we, I mean Americans. We call the seed coriander and the plant, the leaves and the stems are, we call cilantro. And some people love it. Goes into a whole lot of Mexican food, for example, and a lot of Indian food and Thai food uses a lot of cilantro but some people cannot stand the flavor and find it to be very soapy and that's a genetic 
disposition. Uh, right, and I'm very much among them. Yeah. So anything that's even been touched by it, you're just like, no thanks. Well, it's just it's it's a very sharp flavor. It 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 cuts through a lot of other stuff. It's it's very it can dominate in in small quantities, at least as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I've ever had anything where just because of my personal taste, you couldn't leave the cilantro out and the recipe was fine. Yeah, my mom hates it, and I thought I hated it for a long time because I don't know, I just sort of copied it. But I've learned that I do actually like a big fistful of cilantro, but my husband doesn't care for it at all, so I pretty much always use it as a garnish. I don't work it into things. She did use a pretty shocking amount, and. I find that when you cook a fresh herb at a very high heat, you end up with black stuff. And even with her loaf, it was so impressive and so pretty, but I looked at it and thought, could have done without the black stuff. Because it just made it look like bits of it had been burned. I don't know that I would have made that choice. But either way, I felt bad for her when... It looked so good on the surface and was so not so much good on the inside. Kind of like my cake during the cake challenge. It looked good. It was not. And then there was uh, somebody else that I I kind of noted that I thought was interesting was Martha's fondue starfish. I loved that. That was my favorite. I thought that that was like cutting into it and the cheese just oozing out Mm. and... You know, and the, the and I thought that the fig and apricot was a pretty smart thing. Lit. I'm not familiar with the cheese she used. Apparently, it was pretty strong. Stinky, stinky. Is yeah, better. yeah. <laughs> I actually, it occurred to me because I know I've said before, like using a kind of a niche ingredient or an unusual ingredient is daring in a competition. Using a foot cheese. Or a footy smelling cheese in a competition seems like another one of those like, well, you do what you think is best kind of choices. I might have done like a camembert if I were in her place, but apparently she like had to apologize to people on the bus getting to the competition because she had a wheel of this footy stuff in her bag. When I visited Berlin when I was in college, I went on a long walking tour and we walked through a mall and I thought for sure that they were having septic issues. Because it's it smelled like feet and diarrhea. I mean, like it smelled like something bad had happened in their pipes. And I turned my head and realized that there was a cheese shop in that direction. And that that smell that I associated with some sort of aseptic leak was actually the smell of food that people paid to eat. And that's what I imagine Martha brought with her on the train. Oh, I have a friend from high school who's a, a cheese maker here in Atlanta. Mm. And I just... My palate's a little unsophisticated. <laughs> Can't do it. Can't do it. Oh, a trick that I learned because I took a cheese class is um, pinch your nose. If you're trying to taste things and you're not sure how it's going to go down, you're a little worried things might not go so well. If you pinch your nose immediately, so much of your sense of smell, excuse me, so much of your sense of taste comes from your sense of smell that a quick pinch will kind of shut off the intensity of the flavor. Another one that I think that we should talk about is Luisa's. So Luis ended up being the star baker this week, and he did a saffron bread with olives and a whole bunch of Spanish-inspired flavors inside of it for, um, it's like an an epiphany bread. Which is, I think, traditional, like lots of traditional flavors. Right. What did you think of the design? I thought it was interesting. It reminded me a little bit of his rolls in that it was a circular loaf that had splits along the side to reveal the stuffing, which is something I tend to really like. So I liked the design. I do remember that it was kind of surprising that he didn't get rave reviews on it, on flavor, because he also got Star Baker. So it was a case of, I think, the best not being perfect this week. See, I will say my thing about his design is I thought it looked great until he started sticking that edible gold leaf on it. You don't like an edible gold? Mm. I thought that this edible gold leaf was... Kind of like, what is it, the, the Coco Chanel line, you know, finish getting ready and then take two things off. Oh, I, I thought it was gilding the lily ever so. I, was, I thought that the olives looked really great and then he had this pipe work on there and then there were these holes and these other things. And it, it didn't seem like it was enough gold leaf to like say like shiny is what we're doing here. But it was kind of, it wasn't a design. I I, I didn't like it. I, I, I thought that it was a, a weird touch, and I thought that it was just trying to do one thing too many for this particular thing. Don't put sprinkles on the cake if the cake doesn't need sprinkles. Right. Mm-hmm. I got gotcha. you. That seems fair to me. I 
hate olives. Do you have a hard time appreciating a bake that includes things that you don't care for? Yeah, well, that's another reason why I like his. I, I don't care for olives either. Anything mm. you have to treat that hard to make edible doesn't want to be food. <laughs> I don't care for olives and I um, pistachios... I'm allergic to them. They make me sick. So anything pistachio flavored, I mean, I have a hard time even appreciating it or saying like, well, it is pretty. And it makes me think the judges must not be allergic to much of anything if they're able to just try everything. Well, and I think that it's a, a mark of people who have worked in the food industry for quite a while that they're willing to put anything in their mouth to give it a shot. That's true. Have you ever watched Chopped? Yeah, I have watched Chopped. And there it's, you know, sometimes on Chopped, the stuff is actually like genuinely, objectively gross and they'll still eat it. Right. Or I mean, there will be judges who will just admit they're like, I don't really care for salmon, but. Mm. But you handled this well. When I think that part of becoming a professional in a field is being able to appreciate parts of it that you don't instinctually enjoy. I'll try most things. Like I'd try an olive if you gave it to me right now and swore up and down that it was a really good olive. But I probably won't like it. I won't eat a pistachio because it'll give me diarrhea. But, <laughs> like, <laughs> but an olive, I'd give a shot. The only other thing I had to say about the showstoppers, and I meant to say it when we were t still talking about Martha's, was there's at one point where they're like, it, her bake just comes out of the oven and she goes, you can hear it bubbling. And then there's a bubbling sound on the show. And I was like, there is not a chance. <laughs> That That is the bubbling sound inside that bread. That is some Foley sound editing. Aww. Somebody did that in a sound studio. To... I want to think it's real. I want to believe. I want to believe, Max. If your cheese is bubbling that loud, you should back up. Your bread's about to explode. <laughs> bubbling foot cheese. Yeah, especially with the scent. I mean, like, that's a legitimate stink bomb. Someone should be worried. I really loved hers, but I did think it looked like an insane starfish. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it looked crazy. I thought that Richard's twisting uh, looked good and was more successful than Jordan, who tried a similar technique. But uh, was there any other showstopper that you wanted to, to talk about or that you thought was of note? Ian's looks really beautiful when he cuts into it. It had those visible pockets of filling in it, in the braid. And I thought that was really nice. Oh, yeah. His plait was very nice. It's so pretty. And it, he also made use of the hole in the center by putting a dip in the middle, which I think is very pretty and would really make a lot of people want to try it if it were a centerpiece. My biggest thing about the whole centerpiece issue, though, is if it's so pretty and it looks like so much work went in, I would feel bad tearing a piece off. Oh, yeah. Or being the first person to put knife to it. That's why if I make anything pretty, I go ahead and cut it when I bring it to an event. In fact, I like to um, go ahead and cut and take one piece out because if I'm bringing anything to a potluck or to an event, I don't want to take it home, especially if it's a baked good because I do not need to eat seven yeast rolls over the course of three days. And so, yeah, I just go ahead and ruin the image for anyone. That's a good idea. I've actually, I've taken stuff into work before and at the end of the day, it's still there. And I'm like, what? What's going on? And somebody finally told me, they were like, it was just so pretty. I didn't want to be the one to, to mess it up. No, you you mess it up. Mess it up for them. Yeah. And exactly. If I go ahead and mess it up, then they're not going to worry about it. Be like, bitch, you know I already took like 15 pictures with my phone. You go ahead. It's just a carrot cake. I can make another <laughs> carrot cake. Oh, by the way, at your new job, has anybody realized yet that you're going to bring in amazing baked goods periodically? So I've told them that I, I like to bake and that it's because we had a little party on Tuesday to welcome me and to say goodbye to the old manager and somebody had made these pine nut cookies and I I wanted details about them because I thought they had a very interesting texture mm. and so you know but I told them it's like they're like we we eat a lot and I was like good because I use work as a dumping ground for things I don't want to finish <laughs> so everything <laughs> yeah <laughs> I gotta preserve this uh manly physique <laughs> <laughs> that's like I want the face of a wood nymph and the body of Ryan Gosling <laughs> I want the body of Ryan Gosling, and I'm a woman, so. <laughs> and a curvy one. I wouldn't mind having it. But um, Louise Scott Starbaker, which we've already talked about, it being not, it being probably a weak win. Yeah, it, it didn't seem like they were wild about anybody's showstopper. And so Louise with Starbaker, and then Captain Chaos goes home. Bless his heart. And he, uh... He did well while he was there, and I agree with Mary Berry that he was a lot of fun, but had kind of reached the top of what he was going to be capable of and do well. So I will miss Jordan. Jordan was a big character. He was. He reminds me of people I know. Oh, absolutely. I definitely know Jordans. I think that's because we're both nerds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I could see Jordan, like, hitting up a Comic-Con and having a real good time. Oh, you know he's already there. Exactly. Jordan would do cosplay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, 
Jordan, I, they just didn't show pictures of him in his costumes, but he definitely does cosplay. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about our recreations of the bakes this week. Well, Mac, can you tell me anything about your bake this week? Sure. So I took on the technical, which was for ciabatta. And like we do with the technical, we try to find a recipe from the BBC or from the judges to try to base it off of. And so I found a recipe on paulhollywood.com to make ciabatta. It is from his book, How to Bake. And Excellent title. I was like straight into the point. It is a little different from the one that they used on the show, though, because it contains a little bit of olive oil. Oh. So. It's interesting because olive oil or any kind of oil uh, does enrich your dough somewhat, but it can also hinder rise because if I'm not mistaken, it coats gluten strands. So did that impact your texture at all? Not that I could tell. I thought that this actually turned out pretty successfully. And this is the first time that I had made dough since I had gotten my electric stand mixer. So this is the first time I've ever mm. used my dough hook. Oh, fun. And so the- pr- It's so easy. Yeah, it really made it quite simple. And I was like, oh, if it's this easy, maybe I should do this more often. My book, Baking Illustrated, takes it for granted that you do have a stand mixer. And since I, I, I would not make bread every week if I did not have that and use it. I had a bread machine before, but it died. But with my stand mixer, I think it makes a bread machine unnecessary. So this has strong white bread flour in it and a little bit of salt, a little bit of yeast, just under three tablespoons of olive oil, water, and then more flour for dusting. It said to use semolina. If I had it, I didn't have it, so I just used more bread flour. It's hard to find. Rye was actually really difficult for me to find when I made a rye loaf recently. I bet. The thing about when you're making bread is you have to get bread flour. The difference in the flour is the amount of protein that's in it. And so bread flour has more protein in it, usually about 14%. And Mm. so that means that there's more gluten in there that can be developed because gluten is a, a protein. So it's pretty much a... Combine all the dry ingredients together and then slowly add in about half a liter of water, a little less at room temperature, and let it spin on the dough hook for about eight, nine, ten minutes. If you didn't think to get room temperature water, really as long as it's around 100 degrees, it's fine. So you can pop it in the microwave and if you have a probe thermometer, use that to check. If you have it too hot, it can kill your yeast. But if it's not warm, it doesn't help to wake the yeast up and to get your rise started as quickly as you need it to. And so it mixes on the dough hook for about five to eight minutes, you know, somewhere around there. And then you need to tip it into a square tub. This is really specific because when you tip it back out, it'll keep the shape of whatever container you used initially. Did you have a square tub? So I actually have, I didn't have like a little thing like they had on the show, but I do have some gallon Tupperware that is square. Gotta love Tupperware. I, I greased that up, uh, I, you know, in the classic southern american way with some pam mm. <laughs> yeah I, hey i got nothing negative to say about pam oh i have a pam tip where do you spray your pam like where do you do you use the dishwasher trick the dishwasher trick no uh-huh. i don't know what that is i had a habit of I, I use pam and then whenever i sprayed it i would get it all over like all over the counter all over wherever i was trying to use it and that spot would be greasy much longer than i meant for it to be if you open up your dishwasher and set whatever you're spraying on the door you can spray it and then all of the extra spray gets trapped inside of the dishwasher so it just gets washed away whenever the next time you run it shut up with your life hack self i know i know it's uh, like one less thing making my kitchen greasy so i did that and then this is where the be patient part comes in. Uh-oh. You just got to wait and you, you leave it on the counter. This doesn't need a proving drawer. It just needs to be in a relatively room temperature kind of area. And instead, because I used, if you're using a container that's got a lid, you don't use the lid. You just need to stick a towel on top of it so that it can grow. Air can move in and out, but that nothing gets in your bread. And you just got to leave it at least for an hour. But I mean, longer, I mean... I went and read, I took the dog out, I did a load of laundry. You get a lot done in an hour. Yeah, well, I actually waited more like an hour and 45. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there was just, I I cleaned up the rest of the kitchen. There was just gobs and gobs of time. 
Were you waiting for it to double in size? Was that I was real, waiting mark? for it to get bigger, okay. as big as it would get. Well, you can blame Dale for it taking that long because if it were as warm as you like it in the kitchen, it would have turned into the blob like instantly. This recipe said at least doubled in size, but even triple is okay. It grew. And I would, I'd come check on it every 20 minutes or so, and it was getting bigger and getting bubblier. And yeah, it always, and it's always so impressive to me when bread grows. It's a lot, it's a great thing to see. Mm-hmm. I, I tipped it out uh, on a well floured work area, and I then I floured the top as well so that it wouldn't stick so much. Smart. And my preferred way of dividing things so that they're equal is to weigh them. I think that's the most accurate way of doing it. It's the way that I try. That's the way I do most of my fillings when I do things like empanadas or, or something like that. This doesn't really work that way because you don't want to touch this bread hardly I was at thinking, all. Wouldn't you lose air? Yeah. yeah. Every single time you touch it, you're losing bubbles. And you know, our our goal is to be so bubblicious, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I am. You know, pretty literally. I divided it up as well. So I basically I cut it in half, and the square shape really helps. You know, you can really kind of eyeball where that half is, and then. You want to make sure that all your cuts go the same way. You want to keep it long ways as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And so I got it that way. And then I stuck it on uh, two different baking sheets and tr- stretched them basically as long as the baking sheets were. Very delicately holding it at the ends? Yeah. You know, okay. just kind of massaging it out just a little bit or just trying to push it, you know, where it would go. It's a very elastic dough. Mm. And so it wants to stay together. So when I tipped it out of the uh, container... Every piece came outside of the oil residue on the container. The container was clean. That's kind of nice. Did it, when you tried to stretch it, did it want to stretch back like pizza dough? It did. And, uh, but it'll, but it'll stay and you can stretch it out. Getting them perfectly even though, I don't, unless you're cooking for a show like this, I don't think it's entirely necessary. You just want them long and baguette shaped. And honestly, they could look like awful. And as long as they taste good, nobody cares. It's going to end up sliced in your belly. Yeah. And so then it was like, you know, leave them to prove for another 10 or 15 minutes. And that's just so that they can grow a little bit in place. And while you're doing that, you can preheat your oven to 220 degrees Celsius. Mm, Which is? (laughs) Exactly. It's a little less than 430. So 425 or 430. So you're going to be cooking with high heat. It's a very hot oven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're not, you don't put any water in there to create steam. And I mean. All right. I was like, as far as bread recipes go. This is simple. There's nothing to this. Did it call for a baking stone at all? No. Hmm. Like, okay. It's literally just like outside of, you know, needing a dough hook to really work the dough together at the very beginning. I don't know that this recipe for bread could be any simpler. I don't know that you could make a simpler bread. Wow. And because I've done ciabatta and it did require, like I was supposed to use a stone, you heat the stone in the oven uh, while the oven is coming to temperature and you need, it said to leave it in there for at least 30 minutes so the stone was good and hot so it makes the bottom crispy. It did call for, I think you had to spray it down with a spray bottle. It was, it was a handful and it had a whole bunch of different needs. So you definitely got like the user-friendly ciabatta recipe because the last time I made it, by the time I ate it, I was like, it could be divine and not have been worth it. Yeah, well then I would say totally go this way because so we popped it in the oven and then you bake it for 25 minutes. You're looking for a golden brown hollow, you know, tapping it and it sounds hollow, very crusty bread. And actually before you stick it in the oven, you stick a little uh, that flour that's on that you put on top when you were cutting it, it's still there, so that's going to be there when it bakes and kind of be on the outside and give it that that floury external that ciabatta makes ciabatta look so nice. So one thing that I noticed on the show that people don't seem to do is use a thermometer to check bread doneness. There's all this knocking and I use a thermometer. Maybe that's a Cook's Illustrated thing, but I have a thermopen, which is like a folding probe thermometer and it's really accurate and fantastic. And I did a quick Google and apparently they do use them on the show. In fact, the first winner is a spokesperson for Thermapen, but I never seem to see them testing doneness with with that. No, they do a lot of knocking. Yeah, which, I mean, it looks more interesting for the camera, but if you do use a thermometer, you can know for sure that it's done, and it would have really helped them with those rye rolls. It makes me wonder if there's a rule against it on the show. It doesn't seem so, because they let them bring in so much other stuff. I, I just think that that's a, a more scientific approach to mm-hmm. home baking, and a lot of home bakers don't really... Go for that. Go for that. I think it's becoming more common because you've got people like Chris Kimball or, or 
Kenji Lopez alt who are really pushing that stuff, you know, and the importance of it. But, you know, that's not something your grandma would have used. Most of the time, the ideal done bread temperature is around 205 degrees. So, I mean, I used a thermometer for mine to make sure that it's done because nobody wants to have a Kate experience and find out it's raw in the middle. And a quick pop of the probe could have told her, like, this shit ain't done. So I put it in there. Halfway through, I switched uh, which rows they were on and turned them back to forth so they would all kind of get equal heat in the oven. Took them out, put them on a wire rack, let them cool for about five or ten minutes, and they were delicious oh did they look like uh slippers they did i mean i they they had a really you know like a chewier baguette quality that's exciting i can you describe the flavor so the the flavor is it's just a really nice bread it's a you know just a little bit salty because it's got a you know a little bit of salt in there but it's it's very crusty and chewy okay so crusty exterior chewy interior did you get those big air bubbles I did. I think I got some decent sized air bubbles. I don't know that I had the the huge ones that uh, make for such great TV, but I do. Mm-hmm. I could when I cut it apart, and uh, will there'll be a picture of this on the Instagram. I you can definitely see in the picture that there are air bubbles in there, and I I don't think that it ended up dense at all. I, I thought. How that did it, you serve it? Well, I served it by eating it like a popsicle <laughs> in one hand. <laughs> just biting straight into it i mean kind of that's that's how i ate the one that i ate i think that dale made sandwiches out of one of them and then so i'll say this when i made mine when i toasted it it ripped the hell out of the roof of my mouth it is not a toasting bread in my opinion oh yeah because it's going to be because that structure is pretty Mm -hmm. dense yeah I, I didn't care for it toasted, but raw, I mean, like it has that chew, like you bite into it and you have to pull a little bit. It's nice. See, this is the sort of thing that I could easily see like slicing up, serving with olive and herbs, like you were you were saying earlier. And this wasn't a lot of trouble. So if you were having a group of people over for dinner, or if you were going somewhere and needed to take something, I think that this is something that really makes an impact and a statement, but doesn't necessarily kill you in the amount of active time you have to spend with it. I like that. Yeah. I think that baking is a great hobby for introverts because it's a hobby that gives you a great excuse to not leave your house all day. Yeah. I got to, I got to babysit the bread. You know, I've got an hour and a half long prove and then there's another prove and then I fold it funny and then it goes in the oven for a while, but then I have to wait for it to cool and the dog might eat it if I just leave it out. And so, yeah, in fact, I had a friend in college who said that her dad did exactly that. It gave him a great reason to not be able to go anywhere on a Saturday that he had to babysit the bread, (laughs) which I think, like, Ryan hasn't taken it up yet, but it would be a good reason for him to. My loaves weren't 100% even, but I thought that they were okay. The biggest thing that I will say is when people shape it, you want to make sure that your ends are pretty rounded. One or two of mine had a point on one end and that the point started to catch a little bit. Mm-hmm. because it's there's just not as much there to absorb the heat and so it's going to start to to brown and then and then blacken uh, not to the point that i thought the like those ends weren't edible by any means but it was something that was a little different well it sounds like just about everything went right and you said there was a little catching so that maybe that went less right what did you learn well i learned that i've always been a little worried about using dough hooks and how effective a kneader that that is but it it worked out just great it really don't have any fear about that go ahead and use that it is going to make up some loud noises with the motor and your electric stand mixer Uh, they edit that stuff way down on the show but because it's such a a strong tough mixture it's it's an elastic mixture but it's a strong elastic mixture and when they say it's wet on the show it's not really wet it's just elastic yeah it's gluey that's a much better word for it so you're mixing glue i will throw out i read on the KitchenAid website that they recommend using and i don't always obey this but if you're mixing a structured bread dough that you should try not to push the mixer over level two because it can overwork your motor. Better to knead it for longer at a slower speed. Well, this recipe called for a five, and I'd never read that Ooh. before, so it went on a five. Oh, well, it's okay. So but that, that's actually a good tip to know and something that I'll, I'll do. I don't think that this one was so stiff that 
I, like it wasn't grinding itself or anything. So, do you have a five quart or a six quart KitchenAid? A uh, six quart. Yeah, I was gonna say that too. That um, most baking resources recommend going for a six quart if you're gonna make bread often, because its motor is a good bit more powerful, and a five quart might struggle more to handle a loaf. And so, I'm glad that you have the big, the big mama jamma. Would you serve it to friends? I would. And I think that I would take it out to an event as well. I, mm-hmm. I think that this, it looks really nice. And I think that when it comes to baked goods, people expect sweet a lot, like we were talking about last week. So bringing something savory but identifiable, yes. I, I think is something that could go over really well. I also think that this recipe would double pretty easily. So you could scale it up with that with no problem. Would you make it again? Do you think you would? Oh, Absolutely. Oh, like, you do it again. It, oh, I, I almost made it again this week. Yes. I mean, like the problem with like, having you fresh know what would be good. I was like, the only problem with having fresh bread in the house is you there's fresh bread in the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, the biggest down thing I can tell you is like these a loaf of this is 600 calories. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you know what? So what? Well, I mean, that's how I feel some days. But like, you also this isn't something that you're like, oh, that was good. I'm gonna go eat another one. Mm-mm. Which is the thought I had when it came out of the oven. And I was like, oh, no, that's almost as much as like a fast food meal. Yeah. I was actually just thinking, though, like if your options are a Big Mac for a thousand or a sandwich made with homemade ciabatta, like. Oh, there's no contest. Pretty, there's no contest, no competition. Like what you have was worth the calories, as Prue would say. I think it has that going for it. Is there anything else you wanted to tell us? I'll say that for the picture, I didn't really know how to display this. So it's just on the same kind of round plate that I use for most things. Like I didn't have a cute little basket or something to stick those in. And you know, it does kind of make you sad when you have something really delicious and you take the picture and you're like, hmm, the lighting's kind of crap. And like, I'm going to have to get better at taking my Instagram photos because some of this stuff is actually worth a really good photo. Yeah, well, and you know, I have to like hide the chaos that's like just out of frame from where we haven't, <laughs> like we've just dumped our briefcases and backpacks coming in from work. And I love that you both have briefcases. That makes you sound so executive. <laughs> the only briefs I have are uh, in my underwear drawer. Ba-dum-tsh. I know. I am... Um, ended up doing a bread centerpiece. I know. I want I want to hear about this showstopper. I did the showstopper. I finally did it. And this was a more low-key showstopper, I think. For than, you? I meant just on the show. Because they've done, like, bread sculptures where you had to, like, use three different kinds of bread. And this one was just, like, it needs to be a filled bread and it needs to be a centerpiece. So I thought, well, I can, I can swing that. I chose to do... Uh, cinnamon star bread and I found it at kingarthurflower.com it had five stars and 236 reviews and when I investigated a little bit more I love the way it looked but I saw that it had been featured in the King Arthur flower bake along series which is where they do blog posts accompanying their recipes that break it down and give not only some editorial comment but these nice photographs along and along to give you more details and how to make things come out the best way possible. And they had, I think when I looked, they had 20 different bake-alongs that they've done month after month. And everything from Hala to dark chocolate eclairs. I did something called a Pane Bianco at one point that turned out really well. So I really recommend checking out their website. I love King Arthur Flower. I learned some things. Like it's been fully employee owned since 2004. It was at one point a family owned business. And when the family decided to step down and retire, they sold the company gradually to their own employees. I really appreciate their values. They don't have a board of directors like most corporations whose primary concern is the bottom line. And I feel like that really shows in their products and their programs. And they do things like they have a baker's hotline where you can email call on the phone or chat online with a an expert particularly an expert on their recipes which I think is really fun like so if you have a recipe that usually works well for you but for some reason it just fell apart you can give them a call and say hey this usually works great any ideas on what might have gone wrong here and if you look at reviews of their recipes if someone writes a less than positive review, a lot of the time they'll respond with these really constructive comments or suggest that they call the baker's hotline to figure out what went wrong. Like they are really into, 
home bakers and helping them to be successful. I love King Arthur flour. Major crush on them. Oh, and all their flour is grown and milled in the U.S., which is also kind of cool. Nice. This recipe was not difficult, but I managed to screw it up anyway. So far, let's just recap. In episode one, I made a beautiful cake that was dry. In episode two, I made delicious cheese blobs uh, that were tasty but looked terrible. And this week, I baked my showstopper twice. The first time I did this cinnamon star bread and I did a little bit of research into the ingredients because it used two that were unfamiliar to me. There was potato flakes involved and I learned you're going to find potato, either potato flour or flakes or sometimes even mashed russet potato in recipes because the starches and potatoes dilute gluten formation thereby they weaken the bread structural network and make it more tender so you'll see potato worked into breads that are meant to be very soft like a dinner roll yeah and you can also see potato flour in a lot of gluten-free things because it adds moisture without there being a lot of gluten but it doesn't provide a lot of structure so it's usually mixed with other things and isn't done by itself a potato starch granule absorbs about five times as much water as a wheat granule And so you get a moisture crumb. But it's the reason why you won't find something that uses 100% potato flour because you would have a wet blob. Another interesting point is that the potassium in potatoes activates yeast, which creates a quicker and more vigorous rise despite not having a whole lot of structure. So there's a nice balance there. It also used milk powder, which... I think played a part in why my first run of this recipe did not go so well. The proteins in milk cause a higher rise because they aid in gluten development. So another balancing act. The fats in dry milk enrich the dough, which adds flavor to a sweetened bread like this cinnamon sugar style bread and a soft crumb milk sugars enhance the browning of the crust and i think it's that crust browning that really threw me for a loop the star was a method that richard and jordan both used except it was shaped ever so slightly differently whereas they just did a double twist and then pressed the end down the star you do a double twist but the ends meet and it makes an eight pointed star shape which is really pretty i'll put up pictures so with the first bread it came together pretty easily all your all my dry ingredients got whisked together and then i added my liquid ingredients which were milk water into to the bread, the milk, and the water were at room temperature and brought that to a nice soft dough uh, using my stand mixer and the dough hook. I took the dough out and put it into a Tupperware container, which by the way, I don't have to grease because it doesn't have any scratches in it and it has this super smooth inside. So I never have to grease when I use that, which is kind of nice. Cool. Put the lid on that. It was supposed to rise for at least an hour, but when I checked back, an hour hadn't been enough because it was supposed to double in size. I put the timer on again and figured, well, if time runs over, I'll just take a picture of whatever it is at the four hour mark. I came, I gave it another 30 minutes and at an hour and a half total rise, it looked ready. At that point, I used a um, bench scraper to cut it into four pieces, rolled each of those pieces into balls and put it back in the Tupperware again and covered it, let it rise for another 15 minutes. When I pulled each of the four pieces out, I rolled it on a silicone baking mat to be about a 10 inch round brushed that 10 inch round with egg wash and then added a very heavy coating of cinnamon sugar made with half a cup of sugar and a tablespoon of cinnamon. So topped with my cinnamon sugar, rolled out the next dough ball, that's two, placed that dough ball or the dough round on top of the first. So like a stack of pancakes, topped that with egg wash, cinnamon, third dough round, rolled it out, set it on top, and covered it one more time with my cinnamon sugar mixture. So that is three layers of dough and three layers of cinnamon sugar. Rolled out my last, my fourth dough ball, set it on top, and stopped at that point. There's no more cinnamon sugar to go on top. I took a three-inch round cookie cutter, and I it said to make an indentation, but I think I accidentally cut the top layer. So that messed up my look a little bit. But you make you're supposed to make an indentation on the top in the center to show you how far to the center to cut. So once I had made that indentation, I used my bench scraper to make I think it's a total of 
16 cuts, but you do a cut to the right, a cut to the left, a cut on top, and a cut below. And then you keep dividing those in half until you have 16 sections. Once you've got your 16 sections, so it's like a double octopus, you pick up two sections that are side by side and twist those two sections toward each other one, two times and seal to a point. And that makes a point of the star. All this sounds very complicated, but if you look it up, it makes perfect sense. You, you think like, oh, all I have to do is twist it. Like you, I did not swear at any point in this recipe until it was over. Well, and I so. think from the way you're saying it, I think that the complexity in this is coming from the fact that there's, you're repeating a lot of the same steps multiple times. So you, yes. you stacked up those things, then you made some cuts. So you're doing each step multiple times in a row, but the actual doing of that step is, is pretty small. Right. Exactly. So, but yeah, it really was just one simple step repeated multiple times. So the look is impressive, but the bake isn't actually intimidating at all. Here's where things go awry. I've got it all twisted up, ready to go. And my friend who I love comes over because she brought me an amazing Christmas gift that is fantastic. It's a very English baking themed apron and it has jingle bells attached to it and its pockets are in the shape of Christmas stockings and it has faux fur trim and I love it beyond all reason. And I was so happy to be hanging out and talking to her that when my timer for the final rise went off, I thought, oh, whatever. I'll just, I, like, I wanged it in the oven. I didn't bother to recheck my recipe. I remember the number 15, so I put it in for 15 minutes at 400. It turns out that it was 12 to 15 minutes. Oh. And so at the 15-minute mark, I opened, thinking this was the earliest time I should have checked it, and it is burnt, like, black. Like, it's... I know it was partly that milk powder helping it to brown faster and the high temperature. But here's the thing. It doesn't look good. Tasted great. Even my husband, who is a picky son of a bitch, was <laughs> like, this is pretty good. So it's, it's basically just like an extra pretty cinnamon roll, but without all of the super sweet icing. And I think it would have looked great if I had gotten the timing right. I also forgot to put the egg wash on. So it was black and not shiny but i guess if i had remembered the egg wash it would have just been shiny and black which is less exciting it may have caught worse because the egg catches faster than anything exactly so we ate it it was good but i was mad because at this point let's recap again uh i have made a dry cake for this podcast i have made cheese blobs and now i've made a burnt cinnamon roll bread so i was like screw this i'm gonna make a bread it's gonna turn out well so there was another star bread on their website, and by now I'm kind of scared of that one, even though I shouldn't be because it was my fault. Uh, but I didn't want to make another cinnamon roll bread because it tasted fine. We've eaten it already. So I decided I would make Ryan happy and do their, it's called a salami herb bread, but I didn't have salami and it called for pesto and I didn't have that either. So <laughs> I followed the exact same shaping protocol, but for a different loaf, which did not call for potato, did not call for the dry milk either. It's more like a classic pizza dough. So it used some whole wheat and plus some all-purpose flour to soften it up. And that worked like a charm. And I did not complete it within the four hours like I did with the burnt one. But I'm still going to include pictures of it on Instagram because it looks amazing. I did layers of Parmesan cheese because I had it, pepperoni because I had it, and sun-dried tomatoes. Again, you know. You know the story. And I did the same cutting method, the octopus. I twisted my stars. And you can make a bread dough and then put it in the refrigerator once it's been shaped. And that way you just bring it out, let it do the final rise, and put it in the oven the following morning. So I did that. So I basically baked a pizza bread this morning, a pizza star, and it looks fantastic. We haven't eaten it yet, but I checked it with the thermometer, so I know it's done. So that was my adventure with baking the centerpiece. My big thing that I learned was probably that oh, my baby is so angry. <laughs> yeah, I was sure. going to say, I was like, yeah. oh, she does not sound pleased. No, she just woke up and I think Ryan's changing her diaper. She's being laid on her back has made her angry lately for reasons unknown. Um, sometimes she also wakes up scared and it's really pitiful because she shakes. Oh. And I know, it's so sad. I did remember to egg wash my star bread this time around. Oh, the thing that I learned oh, yeah. what did is you, that... So, so, Megan, what did you learn from this fake? Well, I learned that... I learned that 
doing something twice, although it can be a little bit boring and I don't generally do recipes more than once because I'm an experimenter, not a perfecter, can really help your results. I'm glad that I didn't need to bring my first version of a star bread to a party because it would have been super embarrassing. I probably would have just shown up empty handed and said, I burned it. You didn't want it. But yeah, I think I took that away. Like, just do it again. Okay. Do it again. Would Would you make this or, or I guess a, a general star bread again? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think I probably will. We have company coming for Christmas or just after, and I think I'll probably make one for them for a breakfast. Especially knowing that I can shape it, put it in the refrigerator overnight, and then bake it and have homemade bread first thing. Well, I guess that answers that thing. Would you take it to an event? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's way fancy. <laughs> I, I feel very fancy about it. Yeah. Uh, you'll see from the pictures. It's something. All righty. So is there anything else you want to say about your, your bread or uh, anything else about how this bake went? I mean, I made a fool out of myself again, but I'm pretty comfortable with that by now. So, uh, yeah. I'm, well, I, see, and I don't think you made a fool out of yourself at all. I, I will say that the last two weeks I have not been especially ambitious because of just timing in my own life. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that I've got my eye on in the next couple of weeks. Um, there are a couple of showstoppers that I want to attempt. And so we'll see how they go. We'll compare disasters. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I, I think I've had an early run of success, but I don't think I'm going to make it to the end without some flops. <laughs> I feel like nobody listens to this to hear what a great baker I am. <laughs> like, so I'll be real honest and real real about my failures. I have no problem saying that I'm not perfect. So now everybody knows the cat's out of the bag. All right. Well, if if you're not aware, uh, this is Megan's daughter's first appearance on the podcast. Hello, <laughs> Helen. She's so mad. <laughs> She's like... so mad that that nap is over. Yeah, I understand, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, I'd probably better go take care of her. Are you ready? Yeah, so thank you everybody for uh, showing up this week. Next week we have episode four, and that is going to be what I've always considered the oddly named Dessert Week. Looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a shit show because it's a lot of like puddings and things that are supposed to have a wobble, but not too much. Yeah, yeah, the the choice of what to make next week is really kind of all over the place so thank you for listening if you like the show tell a friend or give us a rating or review on itunes stitcher or wherever else you're listening it really does help people find the show we actually have enough ratings now to actually have a star rating on itunes so thank you all so much thank you guys we love you (laughs) thanks mom (laughs) <laughs> I actually don't know that my mom has, but you get the idea. Uh, you can also reach out to ask questions and let us know what you think at show at gmail.com. You can find out more about the show and see pictures of our attempted bakes on Instagram at show. We also have, Megan has started posting pictures of the recipe books that we name check during the episode and a couple of the authors shouted out to us. So, you know, that was really cool this week. But all these details and more can be found in the show notes each week. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Megan and Helen. And Mac. Wishing you a lovely day. <laughs> oh, go take care right. of that baby. Okay, bye, buddy. Talk <laughs> bye. to you later. Talk to you later. <laughs>